Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. If this is your first Sunday with us in a while or first Sunday ever, we actually started a series last week entitled uh, Substance of Faith. As we come into the Advent season, we talk about this baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. We talk about how so many prophecies, actually all of Isaiah's prophecies, have come through through this baby named Jesus. We read some of the other prophecies from the other prophets in the Old Testament, and we can see that for Jesus to have fulfilled that many prophecies is astronomical in regard to the odds, okay? But we can't come into this season with this idea of this baby born in a manger who was born to Mary in this immaculate conception, which is she was a virgin and she conceived a child through the Holy Spirit. We can't come into that without this idea and this expectancy and understanding of faith. And so we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11, which is not technically or typically a Christmas passage, but I want us to begin to unpack what does faith look like? As we close out this year of love, we've been looking this whole year at this theme of love as uh, written in Paul's definition in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses four through seven. We see that love believes all things in some of your translations. In other translations, the New Living Testament, it actually says love never loses faith. And so we close out this theme and this year with this perspective and this, this look at the concept of faith. Love never loses faith. We, took, we divine, defined faith last week in Hebrews chapter 11 verses one and two, today we're actually moving on to Hebrews chapter 11, verses four through six. And we're looking at faith that is pleasing to God. Did you know that in this next section of scripture, it says without faith, it is impossible to please God. Have you ever wondered what it takes to please God? Because guess what, as a human, as I mentioned earlier, we're prone to error, right? We, we, t- we have this tug of war in our minds and our hearts, what we call temptation to do the wrong thing whenever, whenever we know we need to do the right thing. So how do we please God when we know at times we fall flat on our faces and sometimes on a daily basis? How is it possible to please God? Well, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses four through six this morning. I'm reading from the New Living Testament. There are Bibles in front of you that are the NIV, slightly different translation. Go ahead and turn there or look there on the screen above as I read read along this morning. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Back earlier in the year, we talked about how love is not jealous, and we looked at the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. The author of Hebrews goes on to write, Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man, and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, 
He still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. Before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. So as I mentioned, we looked at Cain and Abel back in the earlier part of the, actually in the middle of summer, I believe it was around June. And uh, we looked that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he did not accept Cain's sacrifice. We know that Abel's sacrifice was from the first fruits of his flock, of his lambs. It was the first and the best. And we know Cain brought, it says in the scripture, some of his crops. So, so Cain was a farmer, Abel was uh, a farmer as well, but Abel farmed uh, by, by tending sheep, and Cain farmed by working and tilling the ground. But there's a distinctive nature in between the two gifts that they brought. Because the author, and, and there are scholars that have debated this and debated this and debated this for years and years and years. We probably won't be able to solve it now. We weren't able to solve it in June. But if you look at how it's written, there's a distinctive nature in the translation into our English context that when we read the original Hebrew says that Abel brought the first, basically, and the best of his flocks. And that Cain brought some. There's a difference, isn't there, in bringing something and bringing the best? As a teacher, I want students that come into my class to bring me their best because I want them to learn and grow and understand. Uh, how many of you are bosses or manage people? Raise your hands. Okay, how many of you wake up every morning wanting your employees to come and give you some of what they have? Or do you want them to give you their best while they're on the job with you? Now think of that. If we elevate that to the status of, of, of God, what do you think God wants from us? All right, he wants our best. He doesn't want our leftovers. But how often do we give him our leftovers? Do you think that's pleasing to God? As a parent, if my kids bring me, not their food leftovers, because that happens often, but if they bring me their leftover time and say, okay, well, I guess I've got time for you now, because we are in the throes of the busiest season of life with teenage kids and an eight-year-old and then running to and fro and all this stuff, we rarely have opportunities to sit down and actually engage together. And it's almost as if my kids are saying, well, dad, I could work you in uh, between this time and this time, you know? But see, that's what we do with God a lot of times too. God, I can work you in maybe five minutes uh, this time. Oh, and I might say like a 30 second prayer over breakfast, lunch, maybe dinner, depending on how chaotic it is when we get into the house. Uh, I might, and so we give God something, but we don't give God everything. Okay, well, I've gone off on a tangent. Let me get back in here. What about Enoch? There are two characters of Enoch in the Old Testament. One that was taken to heaven without physically dying, according to the word, and another one that was a despicable, wicked man, and they're just a chapter apart. So Genesis chapter four, there is an Enoch that is actually a descendant or a son of Cain. He's actually worse than Cain was. He was a murderous man. You want to know where multiple marriages came from in Scripture? 
where we see the first instance of multiple marriages is with Enoch, Cain's son. He married multiple wives. And we see that tradition kind of springing forth within culture at the time because he was probably doing what the pagans and the culture did at the time, or he just decided, I want a couple women. Whatever the case was, that's what he did. And he was a murderous man too. He said, listen, if, if because I murdered this one person, my, my father Cain, uh, you know, the result of anybody murdering him would be cursed on them, then let it be cursed uh, on anybody that murders me even multiple times over. That's not the Enoch that it's talking about here. This Enoch that's mentioned here is actually um, the father of Methuselah. How many of you have heard of Methuselah? Yeah? Oldest man of the Bible, 969 years old. And he was still running marathons. Actually, I don't know. He might have been, he might not have been. I don't know what he was doing at 969 years old, but his father was Enoch. And it said Enoch in the Old Testament in chapter five of Genesis, that he was such a good and pleasing man to God that God just decided to snatch him up. That's really all we have about Enoch, Methuselah's father. But they were both pleasing to God. So what does it take to be pleasing to God? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That doesn't tell me a whole lot. It does tell me something. But let's begin to break this down a little bit. The first question after we get to our key point is it's impossible to please God without faith is this. How does one please God? That's the first question we need to ask. The Greek word here for please or pleased is this to gratify entirely. How many of you could raise your hand this morning and say you feel like you've gratified God entirely? Right? We probably, most of us can't in good conscience say that we feel like that we've gratified God entirely. And actually, a lot of us get hung up on that because we think, well then, what good is it? What good is faith if I can't, I, I don't know what, it, what it's gonna take because I know how bad of a person I am on the inside. I know the thoughts I think aren't always positive or pure or holy or righteous. I know I think bad things about other people or I objectify people this way. And I know that's not good and it's a blight on my soul and on my heart. I know I don't always gratify God entirely. So how is it possible to please God? Quite frankly, it's not possible. All right, we can go home now. (laughs) That'd be a horrible place to close, wouldn't it? No one can please God. But let me give you the caveat to that. There's an interesting story in the New Testament book of Matthew that recalls one man's desire to please God. He, said, he, he comes to Jesus. We know him as the rich young ruler. And so I don't want to botch the story with my Brandon's translation. Let me read it directly from the Bible this morning in the New Living Testament. Someone came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Someone came to Jesus with this question, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus responds to him by saying this, why ask me about what's good? There's only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Well, is Jesus saying it's by what we do that we please God? Because I've been told it's by faith alone, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus just told him, go keep the commandments. 
So it's, it's really based, based on his own strength. No, because there's more to the story there. Because Jesus knew that there was something deeper in this man's heart. So there was a test going on in the scenario. So the guy, the guy responds, well, which ones? Which commandments? <laughs> I don't think there was a question there. I mean, I think Jesus didn't go obey the commandments, and the guy says, which ones? And Jesus is like, seriously? I mean, think about that. Well, what would you say? Uh, every one of them, right? And Jesus replied, he's given the guy a bone. Listen to what he says. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. Don't testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Wait a minute, that's not 10 commandments. And plus there's 600 something commandments according to the Old Testament Torah. So is that it? And so what does the guy go on to say? Well, I've obeyed all these commandments. I've not done any of those. I'm good, right? What else must I do? Is that it? Jesus told him, now listen carefully. If you want to be perfect, what do you think he means by perfect? So the translation of the Greek word here for perfect means complete or whole. If something is complete, if you have a complete set of something, it means it's perfect. You have everything you need. If you want to have everything you need to inherit eternal life, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then, come follow me. See, the guy didn't ask to come follow Jesus in the first place. He just wanted to know from this great rabbi who he knows has done miracles, and he's heard about because it's rippled through the region that this guy is an amazing guy who does amazing things. He must be worth his weight in salt. So if I go to him and I ask him what it truly takes to inherit eternal life, he's going to tell me exactly what I need to do, and then all I need to do is jump through all these hoops, and I'm good. And Jesus was pressing in with each question at each statement he made till he got to the really big heart of the issue. It says, if you really want to be perfect, then here's what you need to do. If you really want to please God, get rid of those things in your life that stand in the way of your relationship with him. Because he knew this guy had a ton of wealth. And he knew that the wealth that this guy had had a hold on him. Because what we learn about next is really devastating. When the young man heard this, he went away very sad because he had what? Many possessions. He didn't go away saying, all right, I'll do that. I'll do whatever it takes. He said, uh, yeah, it's a little bit too much for me. I can't do that. I can't do that. I, no, 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 I won't do that. I have a lot of people come to me as a pastor and say, Pastor, I can't forgive so-and-so. I can't do this. I can't break this addiction. I can't, and the, fill in the blank. And the question I have gotten to the point in saying since I've been in Butler, Pennsylvania is, no, 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 no. The question isn't that you can't. The real big issue is that you won't. You won't. 
You're like the rich young ruler. There are some things to you that are more important than your relationship to God. You will allow them to be a wedge between you and God, and God won't be pleased with that because he wants all of you, not some of you, not part of you. He doesn't want anything to stand between you and him. You want to be pleasing to God? Then get rid of those things that are displeasing to him in your life. Let him be the most important thing in your life. The sad testimony and truth is I rarely see that. And I believe Jesus struggled with seeing that in the greater context of the culture in which he lived. I think people say a good game. They speak a good game. They look good on the outside, but on the inside, there is a point to where they will not go in their relationship with God. They stop because, well, that's just too much. That's too far. I can't go that deep. And the sad truth is they walk away sad without this freedom, without this joy, without this understanding of what it truly means to live in complete solidarity with your Savior. I see a lot of people who claim to be Christians walking around with their weight, the weight of the world on their shoulders. What, what more must I do? Do I need to volunteer here? Do I need to go here? Do I need to do that? Do I need to fulfill this obligation? It's not always about what, actually, let me just say this. It's not about what you do. But there's another part of this we'll get to in a minute. Hear me out. What do you do with who you are and who God created you to be? What are you doing with it? We hear the parable of the talents. You familiar with the story? This is a fictitious story Jesus gives of a master who's going to leave town for a while and he entrusts three of his servants with a different quantity of talents, which was money at the time. Two of them invested the money and got a return on it. They took a risk and actually got a return for the money that their master had entrusted to them. But there was one who knew that the master was shrewd and that he was a stern man and he went and buried it because he wanted to give him exactly what he had been given. The problem is, the master in the story, when he came back, blessed the two that took a risk and invested what they were given and had it multiplied. But the one who had buried his was scolded, actually was cast out and had his money taken from him and distributed to the two that were faithful. What are you doing with what you have? What are you doing with what you have? The only way to gratify, let me go and let me finish this. And then Jesus said to his disciples, because here's where it gets to the really crux of the issue. I tell you the truth. It is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It is easier for the ca- a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so the disciples, his 12, were astounded. They're sitting there listening to Jesus. They just watched what happened with this rich young man, and they watched him walk away dejected. And they're sitting there just kind of silent, watching, because they've seen Jesus do this before. When people have come and tried to trip him up, or people have come and said, I want to follow you, then come and do this, this, and that. They've watched this before, and they're watching to see what Jesus is going to do. And now he says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And so the disciples are sitting there like, oh, whoa, 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 put the brakes on a minute, Jesus. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. And here's what Jesus says that should bring hope to every single one of us. He looked at them intently. Do you know what that means? He wasn't just flippantly doing this. He sits there and he looks them in the eyes. And he says, Chuck, Corbin, John, look at me. I want you to hear this. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you see what he just did? In that one simple phrase, he says, see, this guy was trying to earn his way in. It wasn't about what he was doing. It was really more about who he was. You see, God's got to make an internal change before there's an external change. There are a lot of good people in this world that say, I'm a lot better than some Christians I meet. Yeah, but what is on the inside? If you're living for you and you're living a good life for you, what happens when you die? If you're living for God and you're living a good life for God, pleasing him, then what happens when you die? The second point this morning is this. How does one believe in, that God exists? Because that was one of the things. The one who believes God exists. The one who believes God exists is the one who pleases God. The Greek word for believe here is to have faith. It can also mean to be committed to. Having faith or believing in God requires action. Faith is an action word. Now, we're looking at the other side of the same coin. It takes faith to believe in God. It's not about what you do, but then we come into this part of the believing aspect and, and we look at the opposite side of the coin. Because of Noah's belief in God, what did he do? He sat around on his haunches picking his nose. That's exactly what the Bible tells us, doesn't it? And even if you've never gone to church, surely you've heard of Noah and the ark. Because of his faith and belief in God, he built an ark. Right? We'll learn about that next week. That's called obedient faith which is in the next section of Hebrews chapter 11. But because of Noah's belief and faith in God, he built an ark according to God's desires for the purpose of saving his family and pairs of living creatures from across the land. See, his faith had action. So what are you saying? So it is about what I do? No, no, no. It's about who you believe in and what you do with the faith you have in him. But here in the New Testament passage of James chapter 2, now let me tell you who James is. If you haven't been with us before, we did a series maybe a year or two years ago on James. There are five chapters in James. It's a New Testament book. It's one of the ones we call a New Testament epistle, which is just a letter written to the churches of the time. And James, the author of that book in the New Testament, is also a half-brother of Jesus. Did you know that? And so I've asked you before, what would it take for you to believe that your half-brother was God, right? <laughs> so that's one of the reasons we have this book in the New Testament is there was a point in time that James came to faith and belief in God through Jesus, who he believed was the son of God, though he was also his half-brother. So here's the deal. Jesus was the firstborn of Mary, and she conceived as a virgin 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph was betrothed to Mary. So Jesus is now born. Guess what? Joseph and Mary went on to have other kids. Did you know that? Yes, they did. Jude in the New Testament was another one of Jesus' half-brothers. So James and Jude were half-brothers of Jesus, and they believed in God. They believed that their brother Jesus was actually God in the flesh. But listen to what James says. And it sounds contrary or contradictory to what we read throughout the rest of the New Testament and Paul's writings, but it's not. These are very complementary. Listen to what he says in James chapter 2, with, starting at verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? So, it's by what I do that I'm saved, or is it by my faith that I'm saved? I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get a little confused here again. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What does that do? What does that do? So you see, by faith, or faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It's dead and useless. That doesn't feel right, does it? Because we've been raised, if you've been raised in church, you've been told, it doesn't matter what you do, all that matters is that you believe in Jesus. But here's the problem. That's perpetuated a false belief and a false dichotomy within the context of the church and our culture today. See, in that day and age, in the early church, you couldn't separate your actions from your faith. They were both interlocked. It, it, it was, again, two sides of the same coin. It wasn't that you have faith over here and you have actions over here and they're totally disconnected. This is what James is trying to get out here because he sees a lot of believers in that day and age in the first century that are claiming to be believers in Christ, say they have faith in God, but they're living horribly. They aren't living by the teachings of Christ. They aren't living by the commands of God. And it doesn't mean that they, that they just mess up every once in a while. Oh, shoot, I messed up. I need to repent of that. It's just that, no, I believe in God, but yeah, I go to the brothel on the weekends. What's the big deal? God forgives me. Had this conversation in seventh grade this past week. Is it okay to cheat on your test? We were looking at King Saul in the Old Testament. Saul had two occasions that are written about where God was displeased with him. And the second one, he said, I repent, I regret even making Saul king. This is God speaking about Saul. But if you look at the two instances of Saul breaking what God's commands were, it seems to be justified. Is it okay? This isn't too bad, right? I mean, Samuel was late getting to the, the party, and, and there was a battle getting ready to ensue, and, and there needed to be a sacrifice made so that it would justify their win in the battle, right? They needed to sacrifice to God so God would be pleasurable or would be pleased with them in battle. But Samuel didn't show up to offer the sacrifice. And so King David just said, or King Saul just said, I'll do it. What's the big deal? Because God had rules in place and his rules are, have a purpose. Is it okay to cheat? A couple of the students said, well, it depends on the circumstance. I said, really? Tell me what circumstance that would be. Because if I catch you cheating in my class, you get a fat zero. 
Well, if cheating means I'll get a good grade so that I can stay on the basketball team, then it's a win-win for everybody. Really? What do you, how do you justify that to God? What if I don't know about it, nobody else knows about it, your coach doesn't know about it, but you know about it and God knows about it. Doesn't that make a difference? And isn't it God you're supposed to be pleasing more than anybody else? Well, yeah, but. But see, we can laugh and go, oh, about a seventh grader saying that, but don't we do that? We justify in our own minds our actions and behaviors all the while thinking, well, God will forgive me for this. See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called that cheap grace. Cheap grace. And he said that kind of grace does not exist in God's economy. Because grace isn't cheap, it costs a man his life. Grace always costs something to the giver. If you give grace, it means you're letting somebody off the hook for what they did. That's also called forgiveness, but you're extending grace in that circumstance. Jesus gives us grace. And when we say, yeah, whatever, I know he's going to forgive me anyway, we're basically doing that. We're having, we have cheap grace. Now, someone may argue, James says, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. He goes on to write, you say that you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. <laughs> That's pretty harsh. Well, sure, I have faith. Well, yes, yeah, so do the demons. But at least they tremble in terror because they know who God is. They know the power, authority, and might that he has. They stand in this awesome reverence going, oh. Even though they're on the opposing side of God. And when we do this flippant thing of saying, yeah, I believe, but I can do this or I can do that. We don't even tremble in terror. That's a scary, scary proposition. Then he goes on to say, how foolish. Can you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that your, our ancestor, Abra, ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness because of his faith, which we'll learn about in a couple weeks or next week. He was even called a friend of God. How cool would that be? To be called a friend of God. So you, so you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. This still doesn't feel right though, does it? Rahab the prostitute's another example. He goes on to say in James, she was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also is faith dead without good works. Wow, that is powerful imagery. Have you gone to a funeral home before and see the body laid in the casket? Just as the body is dead without breath, so is faith dead without good deeds. 
Finally, how does one sincerely seek God? I, I mentioned this several years ago. It's become a mantra for me. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart, God says in Jeremiah 29, 13. It's kind of become one of those things that when I, when I kind of slack off in my devotional time or I slack off in my pursuit of God, I have to get to this point where am I really seeking him? Because he tells me if I seek him with all my heart, I'm going to find him. That's a promise he's given. Now, it's a promise he gave Jeremiah. It's a promise he gave the Israelites, but I believe God's promises are true no matter what time period we read them in. Specifically, that was written for Jeremiah and the Israelites when the Babylonians took over Judah and completely wiped out the, the, the temple and tore it down and everything. And for 70 years, they were told that they were going to be held in captivity, dispersed throughout the kingdom. But God would remember them. And he says, remember this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. But, but we have to go to, to the temple. That's the only place where you reside, in the holy of holies. And God's saying, the picture is bigger than that of me. You really want to find me? Quit going through the motions. I don't want your sacrifices anymore. They are a putrid smell to me. He says that in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. I'm going to wipe out every facsimile of religion in your life because I want you to seek me. You need to sincerely seek me. The Greek in that passage of scripture for sincerely is diligently. It is the hunger for you. Jesus says to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the same scenario here. You want to seek me, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And so the question this morning as we get ready to conclude is this, how much of your heart do you seek God with? What is it within you? A percentage, I don't know, evaluate yourself because I don't know what's in your heart or in your mind. Do you shut off all things God and all things spiritual as soon as you step outside of a church? building, not a church group. When you step into the workplace, do you step into a whole different frame of mind? When you step into the grocery store, when you step into your home, is it different every place you go? Because there should be a sincerity in the way you live your life that is a constant. That constant should be a relationship with God. It shouldn't change no matter where you are or who you're with. What does James say? Faith without works is dead. Just like the body is dead without breath, so is faith dead without works. If I'm acting one way in one environment, a different way in another environment, a different way in this environment, and my actions don't line up with what I'm saying about myself, why do you think Christians get the label hypo or hypocrites? Because we've shown to the world through the Catholic Church debacle, through the Protestant Church debacle, that we're no different. Haven't we? See, it never said, uh, God never said, you will seek me and find me when you seek Bill Hybels with all your heart. You'll seek me and find me when you seek your priest at this church with all your heart. 
You will seek me and find me when you seek John Christ, the Christian comedian with all your heart. This sounds damning for me to say these things, but I'm just another human like John Christ, like Bill Hybels, like any other number of these famous orators, pastors that stand on the stage. And if you put faith and hope in me, guess what's gonna happen? Brandon won't live forever. Brandon won't be a pastor of this church forever. And I know that some of you appreciate, care for me, and love me, but I will not always be a pastor. And if you put your faith, hope, and trust in me instead of God, if you're seeking me instead of God, if you're putting me on this pedestal, you guess what you're doing? You're idola, uh, 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 what is the word? Idolizing, idolizing is what I was getting ready to say. You're idolizing. You do that with anybody. You know why people hopscotch from church to church to church? Because, well, this pastor made me upset, or this pastor did that. or the, Because you're putting your faith, your focus in a guy or a girl. Jesus, God says, you want to find me? Look at the messengers who are pointing to me and not to themselves. Yes? You want to find me? Don't look at the culture. You want to find me? Seek me with all your heart. And how do we do that? Through his son, Jesus. We have a whole New Testament that tells us how we find him. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the gate. No one can enter the sheepfold except through me. In John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. What is Jesus saying? What is he trying to come across with? You want to seek God and find him? You'll seek him with all your heart by coming through me. You want to lose your life, hang on to it. But if you want to save your life, give it up for me, he says. How do you please God? You love his son with all of your heart. How do you please God? You surrender your life to his son. How do you please God? You have faith in his son. How do you please God? You believe that he died and he rose again for your sin so that you could conquer the grave just like he did on Easter. That's what it means to please God. I want to please God, but I can't because I'm sinful. But Jesus was perfect, and he was the perfect example of what it looks like to please God. And because of what he did, I believe in him. And because of my belief in him, I now look perfect to God because he sees me through his son. Amen. That's what faith in God is all about. It's not about you. It's always been about him. And that sounds so countercultural, but that's what we as believers are. We are to be counter to the culture. We are to be counter to the world. You cannot love the world and love God at the same time, First John says. Jesus even says to Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father because he and I are one. So today, as we close, where are you? In your faith, are you pleasing to God? The only way you could be pleasing to God is to be fully surrendered to his son, Jesus Christ. 
This isn't as much a salvation message as much as it is a faith message. Where is your faith? Where does your faith lie? As our worship team comes forward, I want you to hear this. I'm going to close with this illustration. Have you ever heard of uh, author James Hamilton? Maybe, maybe you haven't. But James Ham- Hamilton writes a book entitled Directions. It's an older book. But in this book, he has an illustration, and it reads like this. Before refrigerators were invented, people used ice houses to preserve their food. Ice houses had thick walls. They didn't have any windows. They had a tightly fitted door. In the winter, when streams and lakes were frozen, large blocks of ice were cut, hauled into those ice houses, and they were uh, covered with sawdust as kind of an insulator. Often the ice would last well into the summer in those ice houses. One man lost a valuable watch one day while working in an ice house, and he searched diligently for it, carefully raking through the sawdust, but he didn't find it. His fellow workers also looked for it, but their efforts, too, proved futile. A small boy who heard about the fruitfulness or fruitless search slipped into the ice house during the noon hour during his lunch break, this little kid, and he soon emerged with the watch. Amazed, the men asked him, how in the world, we have looked and looked for hours without finding that watch. How in the world did you find that watch? And listen to what he says. He says, I closed the door. I lay down in the sawdust and I kept very still and very quiet. Before long, I heard the ticking. And so I found the watch by listening. Often we don't hear God speak to us because we don't listen well enough. And we often say, God, I want to be pleasing to you, but I don't know what you want me to do. I don't know where you want me to go. I don't know how to do this. And we're not listening because we're too busy, too crowded with noise in our lives. I can admit and testify to that fact in my own life. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And in order to do this, we must believe that God exists and sincerely seek him throughout our lives. Do you believe in God? Are you listening for him? Do you hear his still small voice beckoning you to believe in his son? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. If you need somebody to pray with you today, because maybe this is just now settling with you, and for the first Mm -hmm. time, you've heard the message in a way that you can actually latch on and understand it. You can understand what it means to have faith. You can understand that faith and works are not two opposing sides of an argument, but they are together in and of themselves in a symbiotic relationship. Maybe you've heard for the first time what it means to be pleasing to God and that it only takes you surrendering your life to Christ. It doesn't take you jumping through hoops. It takes a change of heart and a change of mind to be transformed by the renewing of your mind through Jesus Christ. If that is your testimony today, or if you need somebody to pray with you, because you're still wrestling and struggling with this thing called faith, you come to my right, your left, there's an altar down here. People on our team would love to pray with you and walk with you in this journey. If you need to reconcile things with God alone, maybe you are not one that likes to have people around you or touching you or hovering over you or praying, it's okay. You come to my left, your right, this altar, everybody will leave you alone here. Okay, you can just reconcile with God yourself. 
You pray in your seats. But there's something, as I mention every week, there's something about making a physical move that solidifies our commitment. I don't know what it is. God has created us as a holistic being, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. And there's something about making a physical move for God that solidifies our decision. If that's where you are today, don't leave without making that physical move. Faith without works is dead, right? Let's pray. Father, we surrender our lives to you this morning. We pray your Holy Spirit would sweep across this room, touch lives and hearts, melt, melt us in, into the shape of your son, Jesus. Remind us that your grace was never cheap. It cost Jesus' life. But also remind us that it is through that grace and through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that we are perfected and made whole and made new and that we become pleasing to you. Remind us it's not anything we can do, but it's all that you've done for us that solidifies our salvation. For those of us that have known that salvation and maybe have drifted or have uh, taken it for granted, restore, restore to us the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within us, I pray this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.